Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about head and neck cancers with Dr. Ansley Roach. Dr. Roach is an assistant professor of surgery and otolaryngology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Ansley, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. I'm a head and neck cancer surgeon. Um, I did my training in, after medical school, I did my residency training in otolaryngology, which is uh, ear, nose, and throat. And then within the field of otolaryngology, there are numerous subspecialties. I subspecialize in head and neck cancer. So I went on to obtain additional training, a fellowship in head and neck cancer, uh, both in the management of, um, you know, resecting these cancers as well as reconstructing them. And so, you know, now that we are celebrating Head and Neck Cancer Awareness Month, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about head and neck cancers. I mean, it sounds like it's a rather large bucket, kind of like saying cancers of the abdomen or cancers of the chest. It sounds like every time we say head and neck cancers, I think that's a pretty large area with a lot of things in it. Um, Tell us a bit more about what goes into head and neck cancer and why it is that those are all kind of clumped together as opposed to specific organs like we have in other parts of the anatomy. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And you're exactly right. It is a heterogeneous group of cancers that are clumped together essentially because of their anatomic location. Um, They are within this region. Um, Within this region, there are many different types of, of cancers that can arise mostly because there are many different types of cells, cell types within the head and neck. Uh, There's the aerodigestive tract, which is, you can think of it sort of as skin, but on the inside, it's the lining of the mouth, the nose, the sinuses, the throat. There's also skin, you know, of the head and neck. So there are cutaneous cancers, um, squamous cell carcinoma, as we know, basal cell melanoma, just to go back to the oral cavity, the aerodigestive tract, that also most commonly is squamous cell carcinoma. But there are others that arise there. And then there's also things like salivary gland tumors, so growths that arise within the saliva glands. We have some within our cheeks, some under our chin and under our jaw, and then thousands and thousands in our mouth. And so cancers can arise in any of those. Those are rare. I would say the most common head and neck cancer that we deal with and that we treat and talk about and where most of the research efforts go is within uh, addressing squamous cell carcinoma of the upper air digestive tract. And so how common is that? Head and neck cancers are, depending on the year, um, anywhere from the sixth to the eighth most common type of uh, cancer worldwide. Um, so not the most common, but we, you know, we see quite a bit of it. And can you tell us a bit more about risk factors? I mean, who gets these cancers and why? Yes, excellent, excellent question. How do we prevent these? How can we minimize our risk? So understanding the risk factors is incredibly important here. For a long time, we attributed the majority of head and neck cancers, again, specifically squamous cell carcinoma of the air digestive tract, to things like smoking and drinking, things that we know are risk factors for other types of cancers. Uh, 
And those remain risk factors for squamous cell carcinoma of certain sites within the, the head and neck, within the oral cavity, larynx, the voice box. What we're also seeing now, though, is a rise in HPV-associated head and neck cancer, specifically of the oropharynx. And the oropharynx, that's the tonsils and, and the back of the tongue. So the area kind of at the back of the mouth, back of the throat, uh, back of the tongue, that's the oropharynx. And that's where we're seeing HPV-associated uh, squamous cell carcinoma. That is on the rise um, and accounts for, at this point, about 70% of oropharynx cancers. And it's anticipated that by about 2030, that the um, head and neck cancers associated with a with HPV will be higher than those not associated with with HPV, which which will be a reverse of what it is currently. So as people kind of smoke less, the those sorts of non HPV related cancers, the incidence of those are going down, but HPV is HPV associated ones are increasing. It's interesting that you say that the HPV cancers will overtake smoking and alcohol. Um, while it's understood that people are smoking less and perhaps drinking a little bit less too, um, you know, when we think about HPV, we have vaccines for HPV to prevent um, HPV-associated cancers. So why is it that we still think that HPV cancers are going to be rising to the extent that they are? Right. There's a bit of a, a lag in the um, age of patients that have been vaccinated and when patients are getting this um, diagnosis. So <clears throat> the vaccine Gardasil was uh, FDA, FDA approved um, in the early 2000s, maybe around 2010, 2012. Um, actually, it was a little bit before that. Um, but <clears throat> there are generations of people that have already, you know, acquired the HPV virus um, and uh, sort of have fallen out of the window of vaccination. Um, so uh, uh, the hope is that over time, as more and more people get vaccinated, that the rates will eventually go back down. But again, we're, we're accounting for this 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 window where people are not vaccinated, but they're at an age where they they may be um, diagnosed with this, which is typically in the the anywhere from 40s to, to 60s that they're uh, getting diagnosed with this. So tell us more about why it is that people get HPV-associated oropharyngeal cancers. When we think about HPV, many of our listeners may be thinking about it as, you know, a sexually transmitted uh, virus that um, causes cervical cancers. So is it systemic spread of that virus or is that more, you know, a, a direct uh, inoculation of the virus in the mouth due to sexual activity? I mean, how does that work? Right. <clears throat> Great question. You know, we do know that the risk factor for getting HPV-associated head and neck cancer is having numerous oral sex partners. So that does speak to your question, which is, it a, is it a direct inoculation? Perhaps uh, it could also be, um, you know, just dormant within the body. Um, so the, the the jury is still out on exactly how how it's transmitted there, but we do know that the um, the, the risk of uh, goes up if, the more oral sex partners that you've had. And so, getting back to the the vaccine and and you know the fact that some people have kind of uh, already been exposed uh, to the virus, my understanding is that 
Um, now, the age criterion uh, for people to get the vaccine has increased. So it used to be that you had to be, you know, in your preteen uh, years in order to get vaccinated. But that, my understanding is, is that that has now increased. So two questions. First question is, A, is that true? And B, um, if it is true, if you've already been exposed to the virus, uh, does the vaccine still work? Yes, it is true that they have expanded the age. I believe it's up to 45 now. Um, there are many different v- strains of the virus. And so the thought with getting vaccination, even if you've already been exposed, is that you the vaccination covers many different strains. And so perhaps it's going to protect you against a strain that you have yet to acquire. So are those really the only risk factors? So smoking, drinking, and and HPV kind of, it, it sounds like it's the, the trifecta of sin. Um, but do some people get oropharyngeal cancers just due to bum bad luck or due to genetic factors? Are there other things that could predispose people to um, oropharyngeal cancers? Um, as far as the oropharynx, those are the main risk factors, but there are risk factors, uh, other risk factors for oral cavity cancer. I mean, tobacco is sort of a catch-all, you know, for many different types of products. So um, chewing tobacco, but also uh, one called betel nut, which is used in parts of Asia, Southeast Asia. Um, that can also be associated uh, or a risk factor for, for acquiring oral cavity cancer. And then we think of others of that are not quite as common um, that affect the sinonasal um, area and malig- uh, can be associated with the malignancies of the sinonasal area, which are things like um, woodworking, um, uh, you know, sort of environmental exposures secondary to occupation. Um, some metalworking can be associated with some um, uh, head and neck cancers, but those are those are pretty rare. So when it comes to um, risk factors that affect, you know, a good amount of people, those are pretty much the main ones that that we've talked about, smoking, drinking, um, and um, increased number of oral sex partners. So when we think about smoking, one of the other questions that often comes up is um, whether it is the actual vapors or whether it is the nicotine content. So to get to get to the whole point of are e-cigarettes safe? Is vaping safe? Does this reduce your risk of uh, oropharyngeal cancer versus traditional smoking? Or is there a risk associated with these as well? You know, those products I don't think have been around long enough for us to really know if if they have the same impact on cancer predisposition as the smoked um, tobacco. So we're just not at a point yet. I, the, the, the kind of general recommendation, though, is that it, um, that it very well could be associated with it. One of the concerns about smokeless tobacco is that it's getting people exposed early, and uh, there's a concern that people are also it's so much easier to to do. You could do it indoors. You could do a little bit here, a little bit there throughout the day. There's a concern that the exposure over time is higher because it's so easy and and um, relatively discreet. So, um, you know, th- 
in terms of head and neck cancer, um, I think we just we don't have the time um, the time that has passed for us to be able to say it is it is it is as um, associated or as um, you know dangerous in terms of a risk factor as smoked tobacco. So the jury is still out, but um, we anticipate it's probably going to be about the same. What about for people who have already you know, have had a history of smoking, have had a history of alcohol, may have had exposure to HPV. If over time um, you quit smoking, you quit drinking, you, uh, you know, don't have uh, oral sex, um, does that reduce your risk? Or if is it more that if you've had a single exposure, that single exposure is kind of like a mark on your record that still increases your risk? If you've smoked, it, we we talk about it mostly with smoking, um, and it, it it has to do with sort of cumulative cumulative exposure over time, and you typically use kind of ten year ten pack year as as a, a bit of a of a benchmark, so below which your risk is lower um, than it is if you've smoked more than ten. Uh, packs per year. Um, t- pack year just refers to, in a- on average, how many packs of cigarettes do you smoke per year? All right. So there's hope for people who uh, want to quit smoking um, and um, and to reduce their risk of getting oropharyngeal cancer. When we come back after uh, taking a short break for a medical minute, we'll dive into a little bit more about oral pharyngeal cancers and other cancers of the head and neck, how they present, um, how they're treated, and what's new on the horizon. Please stay tuned to learn more about the care of patients with head and neck cancers in honor of Head and Neck Cancer Awareness Month with my guest, Dr. Ansley Roach. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital where their prostate and urologic cancers program comprises a multi-specialty team dedicated to managing the diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment of urologic cancer. SmiloCancerHospital.org Breast cancer is one of the most common cancers in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,500 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year, But there is hope thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and the development of novel therapies to fight breast cancer. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with the disease. With screening, early detection, and a healthy lifestyle, breast cancer can be defeated. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to make innovative new treatments available to patients. Digital breast tomosynthesis or 3D mammography is also transforming breast cancer screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Ansley Roach. We're discussing the care of patients with head and neck cancers in honor of Head and Neck Cancer Awareness Month. Now, before the break, we were talking about risk factors um, and things that people can do to reduce their risk of getting head and neck cancers, and particularly those of the oropharyngeal uh, tract. So, Ansley, 
let's suppose that somebody does get an oropharyngeal cancer. Tell us a little bit more about how those are found. Um, Are these routinely things that are screened for that are asymptomatic, or do patients present with symptoms? And if so, what are those? It's highly variable how these present. Um, We often see patients, and this depends on the location, so we often uh, are referred patients that have been evaluated by their dentist uh, who notice a lesion within the mouth, a spot, something that doesn't look quite right. So they get a biopsy and they would get the diagnosis of, you know, cancer. Again, typically this would be squamous cell carcinoma. Um, So that can occur just by getting seeing your dentist regularly. So we do strongly encourage regular dental visits every six months. Um, that's that's one way these are diagnosed. Um, you can imagine that, you know, cancer within the, the upper air digestive tract, um, you know, can be associated with things like difficulty eating, painful eating, uh, painful chewing, painful swallowing, difficulty swallowing. So those are some also things like ear pain. Even if it's not an ear cancer, there are some nerves in the back of the mouth, back of the throat, that if they're um, if those nerves are irritated, they can actually re- called it's called referred pain, where you get pain somewhere else. So some patients have ear pain, even though they have a process uh, a cancer within their throat or the the or their voice box, their larynx. Uh, another um, symptom would be a neck mass, uh, and that implies that the cancer has spread to a lymph node within the head and neck. So cancers that arise within the oral cavity or even the skin, the back of the mouth, the oral pharynx, or the voice box, once they arise there, they have a tendency or the potential to spread to surrounding lymph nodes within the neck. So at times, people don't really notice that anything's going on except they might feel a, a mass or a lump on the side of their neck. So if those are things that you've that, that have been um, symptoms that you have, then you should definitely seek a um, you know a, an appointment with your doctor. A neck mass in an adult. Um, you know, without being an alarmist, <laughs> is concerning until proven otherwise. Neck masses in children typically are infectious. Um, and so it's not uncommon for them to get a course of antibiotics and then uh, the neck mass goes away. Adults um, that have a neck mass, again, it's more concerning than it is in the pediatric population. And it, uh, it really should be evaluated um, seriously. And so let's say you find a a neck mass or you have some ear pain or uh, a dentist finds a spot in your mouth and uh, refers you to your your family doctor or, or a specialist. What happens then? So if you've gotten the biopsy and you've gotten the diagnosis, then the next the next place to go is a specialist that you know, that, that is trained to take care of these sorts of problems day in and day out. Um, there are some general ENTs um, that, that are comfortable and very facile and um, proficient with taking care of head and neck cancer patients. But typically, head and neck cancer patients are managed by cancer specialists, sort of surgical oncologists of the head and neck. Just like if you have, you know, colon cancer, you would want a surgical oncologist to be managing that. That also helps with facilitating other sorts of treatment. Let's say surgery is not the best option for you. Uh, Chemotherapy or radiation may be better options. And being involved with the head and neck cancer specialist, um, you automatically are involved with all of these other specialists. We, We 
perform all of our care. We deliver all of our care within the context of a multidisciplinary team. And we make decisions about the best way to treat patients as a team. We have weekly meetings, and and I think this is pretty universal within the head and neck cancer field. Uh, weekly meetings, uh, tumor boards or tumor discussions where we talk about new patients that have, or any patient really, um, where we're trying to figure out the best way to manage, um, where we meet and discuss the best treatment plan, taking into account that individual person, looking at their scans, looking at their pathology, talking about their symptoms, and then coming up with the best treatment plan for them. So it's very patient-specific, patient-centered, tailored towards towards each patient, taking into account a variety of things about that person. Even before the biopsy, though, right? Like when you just go to your doctor and you have some ear pain or, or a neck mass or something, uh, should patients anticipate that there are scans done? I mean, because especially in the cases like you were mentioning of ear pain, it may be that you have an earache, but it may be referred pain from somewhere else. So how do people know what to biopsy? Exactly. And how? Great. Yes, great question. I mean, the vast majority of the time, ear pain would, will probably be related to something going on in the ear. Ear infections are much more common than head and neck cancer. So the odds are if you have ear pain, probably don't have cancer, um, but it's probably a good idea to see somebody, especially if it doesn't go away after a couple of weeks, a month or two. In terms of what to biopsy, um, you know, we really only, or, or scan rather, you know, maybe if that's the question is, is when do you start scanning? I would say if there's a, a bump that you can feel, um, if, uh, if you're having swallowing problems, it's sort of all of a sudden, if your voice has changed sort of all of a sudden and it's persistent over weeks, um, that's something to bring to the attention of your of your primary care doctor. And honestly, if your primary care doctor is, um, you know, reassures you that everything looks great, um, you know, if you're still concerned about your symptoms, you could certainly make another appointment or honestly get a second opinion. And so, you know, when you talk about a multidisciplinary team and the management of head and neck cancers in that context, is there kind of an algorithm for, you know, which patients need chemotherapy, which patients need radiation, which patients need surgery, which patients need a combination of the above? Yes, it, it has mostly to do with the anatomic location uh, and also the type of tumor. So within the oral cavity, so that's the mouth, the gums, the lips, the tongue, those are managed with surgery up front. Um, unless, you know, in very extenuating circumstances, if it's a very advanced tumor that's involving multiple sites, if, if it's in involving the jaw, the tongue, the skin, it's a, if it's a very advanced tumor, we may try other things first like chemotherapy. Um, but in general, oral cavity is managed with surgery up front. And then based on what things look like under the microscope, so the final pathology that will determine whether somebody also needs radiation or chemotherapy. Um, and then, you know, if you talk about areas like the oropharynx that we were talking about before, many, many years ago, it was treated with um, a very invasive, um, <clears throat> somewhat highly morbid surgery to act, if you can imagine, to try to access the back of the throat, the back of the tongue. It's kind of operating around the corner and, and you'd have to do some, you know, pretty invasive surgery to get access back there. So um, the trend was to actually begin treating these patients with chemotherapy and radiation, and they've responded very well, and cure rates have been very high with that 
over the past 20 or so years with the advent of um, literally a robot, um, which helps us access the back of the mouth, the back of the throat. Uh, it's actually used quite a bit in um, you know, gynecologic surgeries, urologic surgeries, abdominal surgeries. We've actually been able to fashion it and get FDA approval, not we, but um, some, some very smart people have been able to get FDA approval for this uh, to operate in the oropharynx. So surgery has has become another way that we treat oropharynx cancers, again, with also excellent cure rates. And so now we're just trying to figure out, well, is surgery better than chemo and radiation? And we often do surgery plus radiation. Can we get rid of the chemotherapy? So all along the way, we're trying, to, it's, it's a constant struggle or a constant um, ambition to treat without over-treating, uh, but treat such that we cure the cancer, but without provide or without causing significant functional deficits or significant side effects from that treatment. Things like salivary gland tumors, those are primarily treated surgically, followed again by radiation or possibly chemotherapy. And then, and then cancers of the voice box or the larynx, uh, it depends on how advanced the disease is. If it's a small tumor, um, you know, we would love to be able to preserve somebody's voice box. And so if there are non-surgical options for uh, for larynx cancer, then that's what we typically try to do. If the cancer has already rendered that patient to the point where they can't really eat, they cannot breathe without a, a tracheostomy tube, and they can't eat without a feeding tube, then, you know, we have to ask, well, is this organ, you know, the larynx is an organ, is this organ worth preserving if it's not working that well? And if if it's already not working well, well, then the highest chance for cure in those cases is surgery. So again, it, it depends really on the location of the cancer as well as how advanced the cancer is. You know, Ansley, when we, on this show, we, we talk about a variety of cancers and our listeners are, are very familiar with this concept of, of treating patients with chemotherapy up front, sometimes in some cancers, um, having extraordinarily high rates of what we call a pathologic complete response, where essentially, you know, there's no cancer left when the surgeon goes in. And in some cases, there are clinical trials in various other uh, tumor types, uh, not necessarily in the head and neck, but looking at non-operative approaches. When we think about the head and neck, I can only imagine that, as you kind of mentioned, operating in the head and neck can be very morbid. Um, there are important structures in there that um, are important for function and so on. Has that neoadjuvant approach been tried um, in the head and neck? For example, in oral cancers, you mentioned that the mainstay is treating with surgery up front. Um, ha have people tried using chemotherapy as the primary modality and has that not worked? We have. Uh, we, we, we have seen a, you know, we've done it for a handful of patients here. Um, we know that in general, oral cavity cancers will, not all of them, but some of them will respond um, to chemotherapy or induction chemotherapy or, or neoadjuvant, as, as you said. But in general, it's not a durable curable way of treating this cancer. Um, it's just something about the the oral cavity that um, it's just not as chemosensitive um, in that regard for it to completely eliminate the tumor. That's why surgery is 
for the vast majority of cases, the initial treatment modality. Um, we have been using the new adjuvant model um, for very advanced tumors where surgery would be highly, highly morbid. And we've seen quite a response. Um, is the surgery the same? In a lot of the cases, it ends up being the same. But honestly, the the control of the cancer is it seems to be better if they've received the neoadjuvant treatment. It's actually an active area of research for us, um, this neoadjuvant um, concept. Um, and there are some trials within um, the head and neck um, section um, here at Yale looking at neoadjuvant treatments for, for oropharynx cancers. So it's very, very um, exciting area of research and um, does have a lot of potential. Dr. Ansley Roach is an assistant professor of surgery and otolaryngology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.